Hi, I'm Eleanor Collinson, Senior Researcher at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. With us today is author and columnist Rowan Callick, OBE, an industry fellow at Griffith University's Asia Institute. He is a former China correspondent for national newspapers The Australian and The Australian Financial Review. He was also Asia-Pacific editor for the latter outlet and a senior writer with Time magazine. He has won the Graham Perkin Award for Australian Journalist of the Year and two Walkley Awards for Excellence in Journalism. Mr. Callick has authored and published three books in both English and Chinese, including Party Time, Who Runs China and How, in 2013, which examines the behind-the-scenes workings of the Chinese Communist Party. We'll be focusing in this episode on nationalism in China. Nationalism has a complex history in post-Qing dynasty China, such that there are few, if any, absolutes in the conceptualizations and manifestations of its various forms. However, it has retained several distinct characteristics throughout the 20th century and early 21st century. Common premises include both pride and 5,000 years of Chinese civilization, and victimization during China's century of humiliation by the West and by Japan. We are now, however, seeing a shift in the narrative to favor one of pride in correlation with China's rise. Since the ascendancy of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, lines have become increasingly blurred between grassroots popular nationalism and top-down party-led nationalism. The CCP selectively promotes elements of nationalism, which it prefers to call patriotism, in service of CCP objectives. As President Xi Jinping asserted in a speech this year commemorating the centenary of the May 4 movement, which served as a watershed moment for Chinese nationalism in the early 20th century, quote, those who are unpatriotic are a disgrace in the eyes of their own country and the whole world, end quote. Some observers assert that this so-called patriotism, as per party parlance, merely euphemizes ethnic chauvinism in favor of China's Han majority. It is contended by some scholars that reform and opening up has fundamentally eroded Marxism-Leninism and Maoism, the ideological foundations of the CCP. This thinking notes that the party has veered toward nationalism as a means of preserving its legitimacy. Nonetheless, nationalistic sentiments are also genuinely held at the grassroots level, even if it is unclear to what extent this is incited or stoked by the party, and how strongly these sentiments are felt in different demographic groups. While Chinese nationalism plays out primarily in its domestic sphere, globalization and the enmeshing of China in the global order means that Chinese nationalism exerts some influence or has some bearing on its foreign relations. For instance, outrage of PRC citizens was used to justify informal economic sanctions following the South Korean government's 2017 decision to deploy the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense System, an American anti-missile shield, which was viewed by the Chinese state government as prejudicial to state interests. But it is unclear to what extent such outrage was incited or merely given license by state authorities. Rowan Callick joins us in this episode to discuss the evolution of nationalism in China, how it manifests in the general populace, and how it is harnessed by the Chinese government. He also explores the implications of nationalism in China today for Australia and for Australian engagement with China. Welcome to the ACRI podcast, Rowan. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Elena. It's lovely to be here. Rowan, first a rather big question for you. 
Nationalism has for quite some time been part and parcel of China's ideological psyche, but to varying degrees. Its potency seems to have ebbed and flowed. In your 2013 book, for Australian listeners titled Party Time, Who Runs China and How?, and for international listeners, The Party Forever, you note that, quote, during and since the Olympic year, that is 2008, a new Chinese nationalism has burgeoned, end quote. When one contemplates Chinese nationalism, particularly the forces we're seeing under President Xi Jinping, what does it look like and how is it shaped and propagated? Is it, for example, predominantly top-down, that is, led and shaped by the Chinese Communist Party, or bottom-up, led by a grassroots love of country? Uh, the answer is both, of course. And it depends which China we're talking about. There are many Chinas. There's the, at the moment, in the front of our minds, is the People's Republic of China, founded 70 years ago, this October the 1st. And uh, this China um, has changed, uh, of course, during that 70 years, inevitably, um, through the Mao years, then the Deng Xiaoping years, in which he advised uh, China's, China and its leaders to hide and bide, to um, hide your real strength and to bide your time. And then in 2012, we saw the emergence of a new leader in China, Xi Jinping, who um, inaugurated a, a new era, I would say, and he says a new era. He talks in his core thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era about how China is changing, must change now from what he views and doesn't say <laughs> publicly as the old era of Deng Xiaoping. And this is a new era in which First of all, to get this out of the way, as he did in his first five-year term as a core business, was the purging and purifying of the party itself. And now we're in the second uh, five-year uh, term. And this is a term in which we're seeing China on the front foot internationally, seeking uh, China's um, economic strength reflected in many other ways, so that the China that suffered the century of foreign humiliation, which is at the core of the history that Chinese people have been taught since the revolution, that century that began in, uh, with the opium wars against Britain in the 1840s and then uh, is deemed to have finished with the revolution in 1949, that now is the time to redeem that period and for China to be viewed as it should be, as the centre of the world's greatest and oldest civilization, and one which is now leading the path to modernisation and development. So that's this kind of nationalism that I saw and you quoted that I was writing about in uh, 2008 when I was in the uh, Bird's Nest Stadium in Beijing where the Olympic Games were inaugurated and we saw there bringing together the China of the past with the present with uh, thousands of pe people who were People's Liberation Army soldiers dressed in uh, the uniforms of um, the Hai Qing era which 
is viewed as a kind of golden age in China's past, just like the uh, parts of the Tang dynasty era in seventh and eighth century, also seen as another golden age. And now we're, we're the idea is we're in, entering a new golden age for China. So those uh, those soldiers dressed in Qing era uniforms were banging drums in time to inaugurate this new era. And we saw the side of the stadium for the first time in a long time, the words of the characters of uh, famous sayings of Confucius who had been banished under Mao as a, as an imperialist philosopher, now returning as we see the, the, the party claiming China's past glories uh, along with its present economic might uh, as it goes ahead. So this is a fit, pretty... Um, coherent, cohesive, and uh, all-enveloping uh, uh, push towards uh, uh, China in the world that we're seeing. And uh, if you say that that's top-down, it is to an extent. It's also bottom-up to the extent that Chinese people themselves are experiencing a better life. They travel internationally. Um, some of their Children are educated internationally, come mostly now coming home for, for work at home. And um, uh, their, his, their history lessons have told them that uh, China suffered from this humiliation, which it's now moving past. And uh, so this is, this is, I think, what, what the kind of nationalism is. And every country, though, has its own form of nationalism. This isn't uniquely Chinese, but insofar as China has unique, China's uh, ruling party, ruling Communist Party, has unique powers of uh, not only surveillance, but also control, including over education, over ideas of history and so on. This inevitably uh, gives the, uh, the authorities, the leaders, a greater uh, a greater um, ability to help drive that nationalism forward. Now, observers have noted that the Chinese Communist Party prefers the term, so this is with respect to top-down party-centred nationalism, the Chinese Communist Party prefers the term patriotism instead of nationalism to avoid the connotations of ethnic chauvinism attached to the latter term, at least as it presents in Chinese. But to what extent has nationalism, at least in the form espoused by the party, been correlated with or acted as a euphemism for Han ethnocentrism? I mean, is it, for example, harnessed to justify assimilationist policies directed at China's minority ethnic groups? And if so, how effective is it, or has it been, in both a domestic and an international context? Oh, great question, Elena. Many people are writing uh, books and doing PhD theses on, those, on this question right now. The name China, um, perhaps we, we should go back to the late 19th century uh, when Chinese people were, were known still mainly as Qingren, the people of the Qing, the Qing dynasty, which was a foreign dynasty. The Manchu people came, invaded China, ruled it for 400 odd years. And uh, previously, people in China known as the Mingren, the Ming people of, people of the Ming, so named after the imperial family and um, were kind of children of the family. So 
those concepts that people are fairly familiar with. The emperor had a mandate from heaven to rule China and um, uh, had a responsibility, a sort of Confucian responsibility uh, of um, looking after those people, paternal responsibility. And people knew themselves by that name. But in the late 19th century, uh, modern Chinese thinkers were looking at the world and we need to have another name, not just be tied to this dynasty, which was already showing signs of collapsing, which it did in 1911. So um, they started talking about uh, China as uh, so which was a term, uh, kind of the central, central nation, which was the kind of term that was used previously for the domain around where the emperor ruled, but uh, has come to be the name for China. And uh, then uh, what do we call most people who live in China? Then this became another idea. We, we, we are a modern nation. We want to have our own name. And uh, who are we? The people who live there. We no longer want to be called by the name of the emperor. And so uh, Kind of, uh, so then the name was brought, brought out of um, uh, ancient kingdom that people were Han people, H-A-N. And so this name has come forward and now uh, under the um, uh, communist dynasty, which began 70, 70 years ago, we've seen, and to an extent this was in... Uh, this was following some similar ideas that were introduced by the uh, uh, Gomindang dynasty before the, the uh, nationalist uh, dynasty, if you can call it one, um, which by which uh, uh, the, uh, the core population are called Han and then everyone else uh, is called a minority. Um, so, there are 55, I think you probably can remember better than me, but it's 55, 54 other uh, minorities in China. And those people are uh, inevitably seen as variants from the norm. That's most stri strikingly uh, apparent if you go, as I have done, on quite a few occasions to the opening of the National People's Congress, the annual two-week parliamentary session in the Great Hall of the People uh, facing Tiananmen Square. When you come out from that opening session, uh, the uh, 3,000 3, uh, delegates will come out onto the square and be taken off in their buses. And the Han will be wearing uh, business suits and dresses and the minorities will almost all be wearing colourful costumes. Um, I was interviewed uh, a few years ago by someone from China Central TV. What do you think about this scene? I said, oh, it's a beautiful scene. But it's strange how these people are required, or they choose, it's hard to know, um, to wear these uh, bright costumes, these other people. It's kind of like a zoo scene. And uh, she well, couldn't quite understand what I was saying. I hope you can. And um, I think this is a, so this idea of there being a norm and others being kind of not part of a multicultural whole, 
but uh, deviance, if you like, from a norm. Um, and of course, some efforts have been made to uh, preserve cultures and languages, but this has to be within um, an acknowledgement of the PRC's overall uh, guidance and control. And uh, uh, when when that uh, control, the people with their hands on their levers feel uncomfortable about people seeming to owe split loyalty to another culture, to another people, then we see things start to become slightly ugly. We're seeing in religion the uh, idea that religions must, there are five religions in China uh, formally approved, so it's um, uh, Taoism, Buddhism, Islam, uh, and then what people call Christianity and Catholicism. So Christianity is really reformed Christianity. And those five uh, are being required to be sinicized. So their style, their thinking needs to become uh, consonant with that of uh, uh, the whole of the, uh, uh, of the Chinese realm. And uh, with the guidance coming from clearly now from this newly personalized and centralized control from Xi himself. And we're seeing in uh, the uh, regions like autonomous regions like Xinjiang, uh, Tibet, a sense that um, we've run out of patience really with people who um, uh, whose loyalties do appear to be divided and we will um, act to re-educate them and their children so that this will never be a threat again, so that their cultural, religious loyalties will be placed in the correct context of uh, prime, primary loyalty, uh, looking towards the center, looking towards uh, the party uh, for uh, guidance in everything and uh, so uh, in Tibet I've visited Tibet a few years ago you, you can see that um, uh, people were there's a sense that people were being rewarded uh, economically for uh, for moving in this direction for uh, Tibetan Buddhism which is seen in China as a kind of high Buddhism uh, uh, becoming more like um, uh, an aesthetic choice and so people employed to make beautiful paintings and so on to sell to tourists who come. In Xinjiang the situation is that many people are now uh, being re-educated in camps uh, what what their former thinking is we're not really clear we're not really sure uh, what they're being re-educated from we know what they're being re-educated to uh, the government's fear, the government's implied um, justification is they're being re-educated from an extremism which is dangerous which is threatening uh, and almost any uh, disloyalty or Alternative loyalty within China can be seen as extremist and threatening. 
uh, and so we we have this uh, situation uh, which is embarrassing to an extent to China, uh, but it will persist. And we see even in places like Hong Kong, where although the most of the population of Hong Kong are Han Hanren, they're Han people, uh, their thinking is not right. And so uh, Xi Jinping inheriting from Deng Xiaoping the one country, two systems model for rule that he that uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping negotiated with Margaret Thatcher. I, clearly, he feels uncomfortable with that. Uh, he feels the one, that one system, one country is better for those people, better for China. And uh, when he visited there two years ago for the 20th anniversary of the return of Hong Kong to China, the centerpiece was his inspection of a People's Liberation Army parade, which sent a clear message. And recently we've seen these demonstrations in Hong Kong showing that what people have in their minds is something different. And I, I feel that uh, this, is not a, this is not going to go away. It's very hard for people who've given their lives to the Communist Party in China, which appears to have done, um, as they see it, great things for the prosperity, economic and living standards advance of the Chinese people. Why does everyone not want to um, uh, get on board that, to exult in that and to support it? And why do people have some other loyalty in their mind to uh, a religion, to a culture, to um, uh, an alternative idea of rule of law in Hong Kong and so on? Uh, this is uh, this is a real problem, and but I don't think it's going to go away. I think uh, uh, as information, despite the extent of uh, the control of the internet in what Xi Jinping talks about as cyber sovereignty, uh, people will continue to think differently. They will continue to uh, hold their ideas. Uh, they will continue to admire the Dalai Lama to be Muslims and so on. And we've seen Christianity surging in popularity, even as it faces problems. Varying iterations of the phrase, the rising tide of Chinese nationalism in academic and analytical spheres, and certainly it's been invoked quite frequently now by the US government, have become somewhat of a staple in discussions on China. The phrase is usually brought up as one academic, I think it's, it was Kerry Brown, who's now with King's College London, put it sotto voce. There have, however, been some studies, most off-cited is Harvard political scientist Alastair Ian Johnston's work, that counters this seemingly broadly accepted fact, especially as it pertains to China's youth. Now, you observe in your book, Party Time or The Party Forever, that it is China's middle class in particular that has become increasingly nationalistic. So is it then potentially a phrase that might need to be caveated, for example, with respect to trends in particular socioeconomic or age groupings? I think that uh, for any generalisation about China is, is, uh, is difficult to sustain. <laughs> this is a terrible thing to say for someone who writes and talks about China, this is an awful confession, but <laughs> I sometimes have said, whatever um, one says about China, 
is the opposite is also true at another time and in another place. And uh, uh, so I have to say that in advance. Uh, China is not one thing. And, uh, but in, if I can generalize, like, uh, one can say that older people in China who are still in touch with, in a direct way with memories of, um, of the first half of the 20th century, um, will tend to give the uh, Communist Party the benefit of a lot of doubt, if not terrific support, actually, uh, for what they perceive as um, the, st the stabilization of China, uh, it's uh, the, the end of a period during which almost every family uh, suffered terrible convulsions, uh, people, families being rent asunder, people going to different countries, different places, uh, people dying from starvation or war. And so uh, there is amongst older people with um, who learned firsthand from their parents and grandparents um, a default um, respect for the party and uh, uh, and and that's quite a, a strong a strong element their children uh, have grown up knowing particularly in this last um, since the uh, uh, reform and opening period began under Deng Xiaoping in 1978, uh, have grown up, and now, of course, that means middle, some middle-aged people have grown up um, with a different China, uh, with a China that's uh, uh, in which a degree of material well-being is expected. Some of those older people will also thank the party for the providing the conditions under which uh, that prosperity, that well-being uh, has been possible. But my view is that some uh, younger people uh, who've grown up with a car in the house, uh, maybe a maid living in the house, uh, i.e. Uh, maybe with international travel, will feel that it's their parents, hard work and savings that can be attributed to that uh, well-being and then less inclined to say the party did this for us. So uh, they, they may have a different kind of a, a take. Many people have, uh, have assumed that this loyalty uh, uh, means that the party's legitimacy has been based uh, in recent times uh, on continuing prosperity. And to an extent, that is true. Although I don't think in Xi Jinping's case, it's so important. I don't think she himself wakes up uh, in the morning, in the early hours, worrying about his own legitimacy or that of the party or where it's going to come from. I don't think he seeks it. Um, uh, but still, if the economy starts to trend down, uh, it's, it's hard to predict what will happen because that hasn't really happened for so long. The contrast also between the Mao 
era, the 30 Mao years, is quite uh, is quite strong. Uh, the Mao years being struggle years, um, in which class conflict was uh, was to the fore, uh, and uh, then conflict within the party really, which um, emerged as the uh, Cultural Revolution in the last most of the last decade of Mao's life and uh, and so we see uh, we see different people uh, thinking of their own well-being their education their future in slightly different contexts but certainly if I can use another date 1989 uh, after 1989 finished that 1980s decade, which was uh, the most liberal and um, open-minded uh, decade of the 70 years of, of the seven decades, really, of Chinese um, um, Communist Party rule, that decade was closed by the events in Tiananmen Square and beyond and in other cities when the military were used to suppress uh, variant thoughts and people on the streets, of course, in a shocking way. And those, the, the, the party, as well as deciding uh, we're not going to uh, continue with some of those experiments, for example, of maybe uh, separating the party from the government and, and taking party committees out of some ministries and, and other experiments, those experiments were abandoned. Uh, along with that, there was a feeling we need to make sure that those people who caused us most grief will become our biggest allies. And so the middle class was well rewarded, academics, uh, universities, a lot of attention paid to those places. Because, um, as the party would have would have perceived, troublesome ideas emerged from those places and troublesome people, and now a lot of attention is placed on towards making the party, the uh, universities, powerhouses for party ideology instead, and uh, uh, and and so that the students uh, who who attend them. Still, I suppose uh, predominantly middle class, if you can use such a term, are being comparatively well looked after, academics themselves, and so on. So the, the, the party has taken uh, smart steps to ensuring loyalty of uh, areas of potential trouble. People's Liberation Army, another potential cause, uh, potential huge area of problem. And we saw in, again in 1989, the People's Liberation Army, which is the party's army, it's not China's army, it's not the People's Republic's army. We saw the army um, come to the rescue of the uh, party as its leaders saw it. Uh, and that's been quite well rewarded in terms of modernization. And in recent times under um, Xi Jinping also uh, substantial restructuring and uh, so the, the groups that might uh, might be seen in uh, from a Western perspective as most 
likely to cause problems for the party are in many ways those that are most loyal because they see themselves as having most to lose. With that one little caveat that I can come back to of the um, young people who've grown up recently in some prosperity, which they may well perceive as being uh, due to their parents' hard work rather than the parties, and they may shrug their shoulders at uh, some of the uh, parties' requests and claims. On this notion of party legitimacy, which you touched upon a little earlier, nationalism has been described as the most powerful legitimating ideology for the Chinese Communist Party, and it certainly presents as useful for the state when it is successfully harnessed in support of party policies. But can stoking the flames of nationalism lead to unintended consequences for the party? And by that I mean what happens when popular sentiments go beyond party aims, or indeed in the opposite direction, leading to anti-establishment challenges. It does seem that the party is walking quite a fine line in that respect. It walks a fine line, but it, it, it knows where the biggest dangers lie and does what it can to try to preclude that happening. On October the 1st, for example, you think that a country uh, as apparently successful as the People's Republic would wish to celebrate its birthday in a fantastic manner with people invited to come onto the streets, public parades and ceremonies and so on. No, this won't happen. I think I'm predicting this. Uh, one can always be proven wrong with such predictions. But um, I've been in China at the previous ten, at previous ten years anniversaries. I was there on the fiftieth anniversary of the um, uh, People's Republic, and uh, the party uh, keeps people off the streets. So it, there was a military parade, but one in one uh, that it instructed people. Uh, who, who are uh, living in apartments facing on the parade route, not to look at directly, but to watch on TV. During the Olympic Games, we talked about before such a successful time in many ways. Um, people were people in Beijing were also advised best to stay indoors and watch it uh, on your TV. Don't go onto the streets to celebrate or seek to have fun uh, because it's when people congregate for whatever reason that it may turn into something else. And uh, when um, some time ago the uh, antipathy between China and Japan was reaching its zenith over claims uh, uh, of China for the um, Islands, uh, the Senkaku Islands, which are placed between the countries, um, then the, lots of uh, students were encouraged to go onto the streets and demonstrate against the Japanese. Uh, and it started to turn a little bit violent in places. And uh, when that happened, uh, the uh, authorities moved back because. They were concerned that once people started to realise they could uh, change events uh, by being on the streets, uh, and where were they, they wondered where this might lead. Uh, similarly, we've seen mass incidents 
all over China in the last uh, for eternity, really. But um, in recent decades, over environmental concerns, over local corruption, over the seizure of people's of farmers' land by officials, and uh, these things have been um, uh, sometimes slightly encouraged at first when it's perceived as a way of letting off steam. But then after a little while, whatever the subject, the authorities have realised, we can't control where this is going. And so pull back. So you're, you're quite right. This is, this, is a, this is a danger. And even, even nationalism, uh, because who is more nationalist than anyone else? Uh, someone might come to the floor, uh, come to the fore, and say, "I represent the true soul of of, of the country." And uh, indeed, we saw, for example, um, Liu Xiaobo, uh, uh, the, the the great Chinese thinker, uh, proposing. Um, a kind of social democratic China in his Charter 08, which he sought public signatures, and this went around. People signed it, but then it was it was seen it was attracting too much support. Yu Xiaobo was taken away, uh, was charged with uh, um, uh, charged with um, state security offences and uh, held in jail until he died, and uh, and so. When there are times that people appear to um, uh, let off steam, uh, uh, talk about anything, even if it seems at first to be in the same direction as as the party itself is moving, if it it's, uh, if the party is not itself the organizer of those events and the uh, and doesn't guide those events, it feels uncomfortable. And so no organization in China can really, organization can really exist without uh, at least having a line of strong connection or accountability to the party. There are some gray lies, some gray kinds of organizations, um, uh, but this is being cleaned up now so that there's clear lines of accountability to party structures everywhere. You're listening to the ACRI podcast with me, Eleanor Collinson, and our guest, Rowan Callick, an author and columnist and former China correspondent for national Australian newspapers, The Australian and The Australian Financial Review. In this episode, we're discussing nationalism in China, as well as its implications for Australia. Government spokespersons and state press frequently invoke the phrase, X has hurt the feelings of the Chinese people when discussing actions contrary to their interests by other countries in the foreign policy sphere. This seems to have the effect of conflating the aims of the party with the desires of the people. How does nationalism factor into China's foreign policy? Is it at all influenced, motivated or constrained by nationalistic public sentiments? And in this context, what does Australia need to bear in mind when engaging with China on the foreign policy front? Foreign policy has not been at the core of uh, the interests of Chinese Communist Party leaders uh, until really we saw the reform and opening when Deng Xiaoping 
visited the United States, wore a 10-gallon cowboy hat and so on, and uh, started to invite investors. Then we saw we saw a change, and uh, China's modernization has been led, was led at least in the early stages um, by investors, experts from overseas, including, of course, uh, people who are Han Chinese. So we saw Taiwan and Hong Kong being uh, at the forefront of of China's uh, industrialization and modernization and joined then quite quickly by American, Japanese, German, South Korean companies and investors. And uh, uh, so China's needed to have uh, good relations with those places and to become a, a place that is welcoming for the kind of investment expertise that will help drive its economic modernization and thus its prosperity. And today, thus its international power. And the, uh, these things are intertwined because that power that China has is really comes through the, its economic interdependence with countries around the world. Uh, and it's been seeking to weaponize, if you like, its economic power. It doesn't really have the kind of soft power that, uh, in the phrase invented by the American Joseph Nye, that is about attracting uh, few other countries find the way in which China is administered domestically to be highly attractive. Very unlikely that they'll uh, be able, if they wanted to, um, uh, organize in a way that the Chinese Communist Party has organized and is organized. Uh, hugely successfully, of course, at home. So, um, so it's uh, um, it's dependent not on soft power because, although Chinese culture, its civilization, its food, let's say, uh, are attractive, these things are not uh, intrinsic to the party that's ruling, and so. Uh, they're at the edge and at the centre China does seek now understanding that it needs uh, it needs to move on beyond its current level of prosperity it needs to uh, grow rich before it grows old and it needs to get past the so-called middle income trap into which too many countries in the world have fallen. They've reached a level of prosperity, but they aspire to more, but their organization and uh, their 
capacity hasn't enabled them to move on to a, to a, a greater level of prosperity to which their people aspire. The countries which have succeeded in doing that have, are in the world, they're primarily those around China, Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, and so on, Malaysia. Um, and uh, uh, so the, the economic is bound up hugely with uh, China's international sense of its place internationally, why it wants to engage internationally, what it wants. It wants to innovate itself. It wants its own big tech companies uh, like Alibaba um, and Tencent and uh, Huawei to become powerful in the world. And it's been using the keynote strategy of Xi Jinping, his Belt and Road Initiative as uh, the pathway toward this economic weaponization of China in the world, uh, where its influence will be greater, uh, where its uh, capacity to bring back to China uh, wealth from overseas investments and involvements, uh, where, for example, Huawei's uh, 5G network will be will become the one that is most used uh, it's rather like ancient rome where all roads led to rome the thinking is now uh, all railways or roads or uh, templates regulations telecommunications networks sea sea lanes ports lead to beijing and it will be at the center benefiting it's a very uh, high risk policy because it means a lot of money going out and where in previous parts of the modern era we've seen first of all Britain becoming uh, the great power which was spending money everyone wanted to go to Britain they wanted uh, British companies and we saw uh, America we saw Japan uh, in this sort of position now we're seeing China in this position everyone wants a piece of it uh, can China control that or will people, people's expectations run ahead of China's capacity to fulfill it? I think these are the central, the most important parts of uh, internationalization of China's, China's domestic party success. And uh, the rest uh, kind of hinge off that including, of course, an increased capacity of the People's Liberation Army to project itself around the world. So we've seen a base in Djibouti, we've seen Chinese small fleet uh, uh, exercising in as far as well as the Baltic Sea with uh, Russian uh, counterparts. We've seen the South China Sea, uh, much of it effectively now used by China as a military base so that China can project itself. And we saw in terms of the popular will, uh, for example, a film very successful a couple of years ago in China, the most successful film in China a couple of years ago, Wolf Warrior Two, in which the kind of um, slogan for the film was, wherever you go in the world, uh, Mother China will be there to protect you. And so 
China has capacity to, to do that. But what is the main benefit is going to be the rise of China uh, beyond the middle income trap. It'll be China becoming rich before it grows old, moving into this golden, new golden age, like the Hai Ching, like the Tang, and she will preside over this whole period. So the, the idea of China working in the world has these threads uh, flowing through it. So one more question for you, Rowan, before we wrap up. Is Chinese nationalism as a force problematic for Australia domestically? I'm thinking here of oft-cited examples which, though seemingly minimal in number, have attracted quite a lot of public attention, such as concerns about mainland Chinese students and academic censorship in universities, and the rallies in 2016 against an international tribunal ruling on the South China Sea. Love for country of origin is acceptable and understandable, but given the concerted attempts by the Chinese Communist Party to conflate this love of country with support for government, it is at times difficult to determine the motivating factors underlying these sorts of actions. Does Australia need to be concerned? It's understandable that Australia should reflect some concern. Obviously, China is a, is a policy hugely different from Australia's. So while we have a lot in uh, common in terms of uh, economic interests, highly complementary, and we have a, uh, a large and growing people-to-people links. At an institutional level, things are more difficult because any institutional connection with a, China, a Chinese counterpart is going to be ultimately a connection with the party, which has broad strategic aims which may not be so apparent to the Australian partner. So there are complications. Um, and I think Australia has been underdone in its understanding of China. And I think part of the problems in the relationship spring from the failure of Australia to invest in us in understanding China, in the failure of Australian institutions to uh, uh, recruit and promote people to prominent positions, including decision-making positions, um, people who've got experience of uh, living, working, studying in Asia generally, let alone China. We have very few of such people. And uh, so uh, we need to understand better and understanding diffuses a lot of fear in my, in my view. Um, we need to look at the, uh, uh, the local, uh, our own ethnic Chinese community for answers to the kind of questions that you've raised. There are 1.2 million people of um, uh, Chinese ethnicity in Australia. And uh, these people come from a big variety of uh, backgrounds um, and I remember talking recently uh, with the well-known Chinese cartoonist Ba Diu Tao, which is a pen name he uses, who, who lives uh, in Australia now. Um, cartooning is 
cartoon images of Chinese leaders are banned in the People's Republic, so he's he's living here. But in our conversation, he said that he chose Australia because it welcomed migrants. But he said um, it's a difficult it's difficult for new Australian citizens from China. So on the one hand, there are what he called xenophobic groups like One Nation Rising. And on the other, he said, people like me who criticise the Chinese government on an entirely different basis, we're stuck in the middle, we can't go right and we can't go left. And so uh, what he was saying was that uh, uh, Western societies like Australia should invite uh, um, members of our Chinese community uh, to play a more prominent and public role in working out how our societies should respond to the rise of China. Uh, and that in part may help counter the argument that criticism of the Chinese party state is necessarily anti-Chinese or racist, that one can in fact criticize the People's Republic without being viewed as anti-Chinese or, or racist. Now we've got a uh, part of, I think, the, the um, challenge that we have is the extent of, the, uh, of our dependence in some markets on on China. So uh, the student market, if I can call it that, it's an uncomfortable term I suppose, it's, it's, it's become uh, very uh, China focused. So uh, some of our universities depend for a large amounts of their income on students from People's Republic. And that leads inevitably to administrators, uh, administrators of those universities uh, to worry, to think, well, you know, what's going to happen to our income if uh, people we employ are perceived to uh, criticise uh, Beijing? Uh, could the tap be turned off and so on? I think on the whole that the lessons are that the uh, relationship Australia and China has, has become so thick it's actually quite hard to turn those levers on and off uh, uh, purely for political reasons. I think uh, uh, there are so many people involved at either end. So we're seeing, although people, uh, some people have said um, that uh, the bilateral relationship is not, it has, uh, it is in some kind of freeze, trade has continued to grow. And uh, we've seen an increase in the number of Chinese students here, and I think we should welcome them. And uh, the situation is slight; has become um, slightly uh, um, complicated, also by the role played by people whom uh, the uh, sinologist John Fitzgerald calls message washers. So people who uh, um, who tend to espouse uh, the messages of the People's Republic, um, but are Australians. And uh, uh, that is viewed as of high, val high value, particularly for when the message comes back into China, it's seen as a valid international validation of the party's messages. And also, of course, uh, it naturally feeds into the... Uh, into the debate here and people are allowed to say what on earth they want, but uh, it, it, it's complicated because of the way in which China operates. So we, we, I, my personal view is 
should encourage much better understanding of China. We should uh, uh, build up uh, people-to-people links in a much more um, uh, generous and open way, but at the same time understand the nature of uh, the China, the, the People's Republic, and to be somewhat wary of institutional connections. Well, thank you very much, Rowan Callick, for those insights into what is certainly a vast and complicated topic indeed. Thanks very much for joining us today on the ACRI podcast. And no worries, Elena. Lovely to be with you. You can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or listen to all episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There you'll also find more about ACRI's research and events. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.